Good morning, everyone. How are we? Good morning. (laughs) I would like to start off with prayer, if you'd all join me, please. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity we've been given to continue to have access to your holy word. Uh, We give you thanks that your word is the medium that you use to speak to us and transform us through the inner workings of the Holy Spirit. We present ourselves to you now, Lord, knowing full well that we are unworthy, but that you are worthy, and that by the workings of the Holy Spirit, you make us worthy in your likeness. Lord, my request is that you would be actively at work in us as we listen to the teachings of your word, and let us be receptive to the voice or prompting of the Holy Spirit as your word is preached. In your heavenly name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Something that really annoys me, I don't know if you all feel the same, is when a believer says that they're Christian, when someone says that they're Christian, but they don't live the Christian life, either by refusing to read the scriptures or blatant disregard for what they hear or read in the scriptures. I hope none of you fit this description. Today's message, the focus verse is verse 20. Verse 20 is that verse. If you were to remember one verse, a memory verse, if you will, verse 20 is that verse. For us to understand verse 20, we do need to cover a few points. The first point, we will look at the division between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. That's covered in verses 11 to 14. We will look at the means of justification, whether by law or by faith. That's covered in verses 15 to 16. And lastly, we will look at what it actually means for us to be justified in Christ, that we are created new. This is covered in verses 17 to 21. As we listen to the message today, I do ask that you compare yourselves to the, point of the, to the points of this message. I ask this to encourage you so that scriptures can reform your life if you are lacking in any way. Our first point, division amongst believers. We get this from Galatians 2, verses 11 to 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, in he afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Looking at these verses, we have a few things to unpack. The first is the problem. Paul had recognised that Cephas, Cephas is Peter, Cephas is Peter's Aramaic name, Paul had recognised that Peter was not conducting himself as a Christian should conduct themselves especially a Christian leader. Peter was, in fact, being a hypocrite. Peter had done one of the worst things a believer could possibly do in the church. He showed favouritism. He would eat with the Gentiles only when no one important or in authority of the church was present. Unfortunately, when someone in authority was present, this example representative of James, when someone was present, Peter deliberately separated himself from the Gentile abandoned and spent his time with the Jewish converts. Peter had abandoned some of these believers. Now, this abandonment by Peter, it was not a subtle action. 
it would have been obvious enough that some of the other believers, the Jewish converts, followed him in his hypocrisy. It was obvious enough that Paul, the Apostle Paul, picked up what the problem was. This was not subtle. This was, this was obvious. Now, everyone does make mistakes, and that's fine. When you make a mistake, you realise it, you repent, you're forgiven. That's how Christians work. But there is no excuse for this type of hypocrisy or discrimination. I hope none of you here have experienced this type of discrimination or isolation or abandonment. If you have, you would know exactly what these Gentile Christians had been feeling at that time. In Acts chapter 10, uh, we, Peter has a vision. Now, this is the vision where the curtain is lifted down from the heavens, the unclean animals are revealed, and God says to Peter, do not, do not declare what is unclean that I have declared clean. We that this is actually a metaphor for salvation coming to the Jews and the Gentiles. Peter's very words in verses 45 to 47 show that the vision had actually taught Peter that God no longer discriminates between the Jews or the Gentiles. And God does not discriminate between the Jews or the Gentiles. He chooses people regardless of their nationality, their skin colour, their social status, male, female, etc. God does not discriminate. He chooses people from all kinds. So Peter knew, he actually knew what he was doing was wrong. He was without excuse. In the letter of James, the leader of the church at the time, we see that James himself writes about favouritism, which, to be clear, is to be forbidden within the church. We all, as believers, have been redeemed by the Lord. And all believers must submit to Christ together. In this, we are all equal. For a believer to show favouritism is to be on dangerous ground with dangerous implications. Are any of you showing favouritism in the church today? Are any of you repent appropriate discrimination to unbelievers? If you are, repent of your sin. Now, I look across this church and I see people from many nations and many cultures. I see black people, I see white people, I see Asian people, I see Indian people, I see lots of people. What a beautiful image of heaven that we have right here before us, this unity that we have right here. Now let's look at the impacts of Peter's, uh, the implications of Peter's actions. Peter's, there's three of them. Peter's actions have supported the Jewish converts' unbiblical practice that Christ was not all-sufficient for salvation. You see, the, the Jews traditionally, before they were Christians, they, in order for them to spend time with someone, they had to be clean themselves and the people they spent time with had to be clean. Traditionally, the, the Gentiles were not clean. The Jews, when they became Christians, held on to this belief for some reason. And Peter, in his abandonment of the Gentile believers, had actually supported this Jewish, unbevolved Jewish tradition. We are no longer under the law of old. We now have freedom in Christ, but this freedom only applies to the believers. If you're not among the believers, this freedom does not apply to you. If you are not a believer, then you are still an unrepentant sinner. You need to repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus. That's one. Two, 
Peter was a prominent church leader. He was the rock of the church. In this scenario, he has confused and emboldened other believers to follow him in his hypocrisy, to deny the biblical teaching, the biblical truth. Now, church leaders have a tremendous responsibility. I don't know if many of you know that Paul, our Paul, has a huge responsibility. He is charged, just like Peter was, he's charged with leading the flock of the Lord's people. If they lead the flock astray, the Lord will hold them to account. This is important. We should be praying for our Pastor Paul on all occasions. Now, some of us might evidently think that we are, we're pretty well versed in the Scriptures. I certainly think I'm pretty well versed. <laughs> and therefore, we could not possibly go astray. I'm going to show you the last implication of Peter's actions. Uh, Peter's actions had caused even strong characters of the faith, like Barnabas, to be led astray. The application is that everyone, even leaders, are not immune from making mistakes. It does not matter how well versed you are in the Scriptures, how many verses you've memorised, how often you read your Bible, that is irrelevant. Your behaviour, you are not immune from corrupt behaviour. Barnabas was a disciple. Even he was led astray. Peter's actions here were not in line with the teachings of Scripture. Now let's look at the solution that's presented to us in the passage. Paul's solution was to confront Peter face to face. Paul did not allow Peter or his hypocritical followers to continue in their sin without having been confronted with the truth. Paul was no coward, neither Paul was no coward. We as believers must take a firm stand when we come across anything that would or could cause division within the church. Division is not acceptable for the Lord's people. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 16. We all collectively make up the church. Division has no business in our spiritual family. Now, this family, I am referring to the family of true believers. Division has no place here. It is not welcome. I also want to point out that Paul, the Apostle Paul, didn't go behind Peter's back. Paul did not try to undermine Peter's authority. If he had tried, it would have devastated the church. Then and now, it would have devastated the church. If you have to confront someone, don't play the politics. If you do, you will cause dissension amongst the church. Don't do it. I also want to say that sometimes there is a more appropriate time and place. Paul did not uh, have that issue. He confronted Peter in front of everyone. But sometimes when you do have to confront someone, there is a more appropriate time and place to confront them. In Paul's rebuke to Peter about unity, Paul himself did not break unity with Peter. The application is that when the occasion does arise for us to rebuke a brother or a sister, must not violate or destroy our unity with our fellow brothers and sisters. They are still part of the spiritual family. Now let's look at the second point in the, me- in the message today, the means of justification. This is found in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, Paul doesn't beat around the bush here. At the beginning of verse 15, he starts off by saying, we who are Jews by birth. Now, what does this mean? 
Well, Paul is emphasising that the Jews, the Jews are very rigorous and disciplined in observing the law. They're much more disciplined than you or me. They are incredibly disciplined. Them being so disciplined, even they are not justified by the law. What hope do the Gentiles have if the Jews impose their traditions on them? That even the the law does not and cannot justify us. Paul is speaking as a Jew, that even the Jews cannot be justified by the law. The question then is, what is this law? Well, the definition of law, according to Google, it is a Google definition, uh, the system of rules which a particular country or community recognises as regulating the actions of its members and which it may enforce by the imposition of penalties. Now, this definition is the law of the land that it's referring to, and God sets these authorities over us as a standard to follow in obeying him. If we can respect the laws of the land, we should then be able to respect the laws of God, his precepts. Romans 13 verses 1 to 5 makes it clear. Uh, We are to submit to the governing authorities. There is no room for revolt or rebellion. This is the Lord's will. I'll just let you guys read that while it comes on. Now, we demonstrate our submission every day when we adhere to the laws of our government. Now, I don't know if any of you know this, but when you're on the Hume Highway going 110 kilometres, it's the legal speed limit. Have any of you ever noticed that after a short while you've gone from 110 to 150? It must just be me. (laughs) (laughs) In our submission to the law, we then must apply the brake to bring us back to the legal speed limit. That is submission to the law. Another more serious example is this COVID-19, how it's been handled. The law, at least in Australia, uh, has stipulated that we stay at home, we wear masks, social distance, stop attending church physically and rules and regulations. Our submission to the law was to follow the government guidelines as much as is reasonable coexisting with God's laws. The laws of the land are designed to provide us with order and security. Our responsibility to those laws is to follow and show our submission to those governing authorities and also to God. This is a good and right thing to do as believers. However, Paul is not referring to the laws of the land in this instance. He is referring to the laws of God in this section of Galatians. God's laws are the standard that God had placed upon his people, the Israelites, otherwise known as the Jews. He did and lead the, he freed them from the Egyptians. God had Moses both record these laws and lead the Israelites in keeping the law. To break these laws, God's laws, was to warrant death. It was final. There was no six months on bail, no community service, but death. If you broke them, you died. The Jews were supposed to follow these laws as a matter of first importance. It was crucial. Now we read here in Galatians that the law was and is insufficient for our justification. The law was excellent, it still is excellent, for highlighting our sin. But that is not enough for us to be justified. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we measured ourselves according to the law, every single one of us would be found guilty. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The question then is, why is this law still relevant to us today? 
The law is still relevant because the law of God sets the standard for us as God's people to follow. Even if it highlights our iniquities, our own shirts, we must strive for righteousness in all that we do. We can never earn our way into salvation, into heaven, but we will, we will always fall short of the mark apart from the grace of God. But the law gives us an ideal to strive towards. Now, now that we know we cannot be justified by the law, there must be another way to be justified. Justified by faith. Paul makes it quite clear that the law cannot justify anyone, let alone the Jews. However, he does not leave us without an answer. Paul does indicate that we can, in fact, be justified, not by the law, but by faith. And not just any faith. You all demonstrated faith in the vehicles that brought you here this morning, all demonstrating faith in those seats that you're sitting in. I certainly did, as big as I am. But that faith does not justify us. Rather, it is faith in Jesus Christ where we can receive justification, and only in Christ. The question we then have to ask is, what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11 verse 1, do not quite clear that faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. So if we are to have faith in Jesus we must have confidence that he has come to reconcile us to God and we also trust the assurance Jesus gives to us as believers. We are his people. His assurances to us are the promise of eternal life, the promise of forgiveness when we confess and repent, the promise of the peace of God that will guard our hearts and our minds when we pray, the promise of communion with him, There are many, many more promises that God has made. He is faithful. He will deliver. If we truly believe his promises and have confidence in this hope we have in him, then we have faith. And if we have faith in Jesus, has to be faith in Jesus, then we will be justified. Then what is justification? So glad you asked. Uh, To be justified is to be set right with God. We are no longer called sinners, but holy people. The Bible refers to us as saints. Our debt is cleared. We are redeemed. Praise the Lord. It is important to note here, and I only say this because many people are confused these days, justified with God is exclusively to the believers. It is not a free pass to just anyone who wants it. It's to the believers and only to the believers. Now let's look at the third point in the message today. <clears throat> this is Galatians chapter this is taken from Galatians chapter 2 verses 17 to 21. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now, justified in Christ, Paul in verses 17 and 18 goes straight into the rhetorical realm. Now, A rhetorical question is a question where the one asking the question 
doesn't really expect an answer because it should be obvious. Paul starts in verse 17 by asking the rhetorical question. If we are seeking to be justified in Christ through faith and remembering that faith is to trust the promises of Christ and to have an assurance that he will be faithful in his promises to us, if we are to be justified in Christ through faith and find ourselves amongst sinners, does Christ promote sin? This is the rhetorical question that Paul is asking. The answer is absolutely not. He answers it himself. It is impossible for Christ to encourage us to sin or tempt us to sin. If you're not convinced of this, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10 to 10 makes it quite clear that God is unable to have any relations with sin. If we claim to be Christians and are walking in sin, we are making God out to be a liar. And if you are, in fact, making God out to be a liar, I fear for you on the day of judgment. It will not go well with you. Now, these verses, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, they are referring to the unrepentant in this scenario. Uh, but I, I bring it up to highlight to you how much God hates sin. He has no relations with it at all. Now, let's look at verse 18. Paul brings up in verse 18 of Galatians that to go back to our sinful lifestyle, which was forgiven when we were justified, that is really to make us breakers of God's law again. This again results in death. If we go back, if once we're saved, if we go back to our sinful lifestyle, it is evidence that we're not actually saved. To be saved is to be created new, a new desire to glorify God. We will no longer be able to go back to our sinful ways if we are created new. Now let's look at verses 19 to 21. Because we believers are justified by faith, we are no longer called sinners, but righteous. We get this from the passage in verses 19 to 21. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now remember, the law is excellent for exposing our sin and our unrighteousness. If we did measure ourselves against the law, we are rightfully to be put to death, sent to hell. That is what we deserve. We are utterly unworthy. Verse 20. Oh, sorry, too fast. Fortunately, our sinful selves has been put to death by the law. What I mean by this statement is that we are now no longer called sinners because our sinful self is now dead to the law. Now we go to verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Again, our sinful selves has been destroyed by Christ's crucifixion. Sinful selves is dead. We are created new. We are no longer sinners but righteous. Our sinful self is dead. It no longer exists in the sight of God because we are redeemed now. I know I did say this earlier, but it is the main point that I want you to take away from this message, that we are created new. The rest of verse 20. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, repeating myself, our sinful past no longer exists in the sight of God. We now live our lives wholly for Christ. We will continue to struggle with sin. I know I certainly do. But the Holy Spirit will guard us, guide us, and lead us into a more righteous lifestyle. Let's look at verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. 
We cannot be justified through this law. The law is the measure used by God to judge people. We no longer live by the law, but live for, live for Christ by his grace. Now, this quote that you're about to see on the PowerPoint comes from Mr. Penny himself. So you know it's quality. (laughs) The principle of the Christian life is to live remembering that it is not our life to live, but rather it is Christ's life in us. If we live our lives in submission to Christ, we honour him and his sacrifice for us. He then promises to protect us, guide us, secure us. His promises are eternal and he will keep us in his eternal love. Now we get to the conclusion of today's message. Uh, To conclude, I just want to reiterate the main points. First one is division within the church. The spiritual family of God is never acceptable. Now I can disagree with you. We can disagree with each other on a lot of minor things. I disagree with quite a few of you on some things. But our union with Christ must increase our union with each other. That's one. Two, we're not justified by the law or by our works. We are justified strictly through faith in Christ alone. Remember the solas. Three, as believers in Christ, it is important to realise that we are now new creations. Our bodies are still dying, we're still decaying, but our spirits are made new. Therefore, for believers, we can trust that we already have eternal life. We don't need to wait until we die. We have it already. If you were to remember one verse from today's message, again, verse 20, I think it's the, I think it's the best verse in the passage, if I'm honest. It uh, puts into perspective what we actually have, something the unrepentant do not have. We are created new. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks that you speak to us through your scriptures. Lord, we give you thanks for the assurance you give us that we are created new and, there, and we therefore have eternal life in you. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us with these words during times of hardship, when we feel alone, that you have redeemed us, created us new, and that you will come back and take us with you into eternity. Lord, we lastly pray that you would hold us fast as we go into our weeks. In your heavenly name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.